the last groups that we we had um a woman complex grief um february quite a lot of mud quite a lot of rain sort of going going on and she went to the horse um to go and connect with, with it and she slipped and she fell in probably the biggest puddle in 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 the whole space and she just started laughing and this was the first time she laughed in probably a decade because she just felt what else can i do this is my rock bottom i'm here in horseshit i am on my back i'm in the mud it's raining it's cold this is really my rock bottom and you know and then people started helping her up and she went to the horse and she hugged the horse and she cried and cried and cried and cried and something shifted last week um a horse would um someone who's quite scared of horses didn't want to go near them um and just went and put its head right on this person's chest and um and i'm thinking gosh you know i've never seen you do that you've never you've never done that you know? i can tell you what doesn't make a good therapist i mean someone who wants to help other people is not a good therapist so that's a person who needs a lot of therapy um you know we you know you don't if you if you want to help if you want to rescue you need to understand what drives you to kind of help and and, and rescue because you're going to be doing it for you rather than for the people you're 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 working with so one two So today's episode, it's about horses and horse therapies. Uh, bear with me for a little longer introduction. Uh, eight years ago, a friend of mine, Adrian, a psychologist, um, tells me, hey, David, you like horses, you play polo, I like these things of self-growth, you should really do a horse constellation. I was like, sure, let me try it. I was curious. So I scheduled a session and the following Saturday, I am on my motorbike on the way to the mountains outside of Mexico City at 7 a.m. I get there and there is a lady and three horses. And she asks me, so what you want to go over? And I have, I have no idea what I'm doing here. She's like, don't worry, the horses will tell us. And I'm like, okay, she's crazier than I am. And then five minutes into it, she's just starts giving me exercises and she goes over my relationships, my family, my work situation. And I was blown away. I thought there was a trick, but the, the things she told me were, were just really on spot. Um, so I decided to do a couple of sessions more, four or five sessions. And after that, my life was really impacted. I could see patterns of behavior that uh, I hadn't understood I, I had before. And started changing and this was fantastic and the impact was amazing um so i decided to study it i studied it for the next year and a half two years i did over 100 sessions guided with lorenza my teacher and after which i've started giving sessions both for companies executives uh people uh in general uh doing uh, all types of therapies from couples therapies situations regarding health uh regarding trauma um, and the results and impact on people have been massive. So while it was kind of a hobby or passion at the beginning, people started coming to me and asked me for more sessions. And this has developed into something called Leeds Horses, which we are like really focusing on developing um, a strong project. The only thing now, after 700 sessions, it's like, it's been hard to find like research on it and more practitioners and 
I came across this fantastic person, Professor Andreas Lifoja. And Andreas is one of the top experts. He has a lot of experience. I'm going to tell you a little bit of his uh, resume. And he was kind to do the podcast with us. Um, and the truth is, horse therapy is um, more and more being accepted and used both by individuals and companies, companies like Amazon, Walmart, Accenture, L'Oreal, uh, Microsoft are already using it. Uh, so I decided to interview Andreas and we have an amazing conversation. Andreas is a chartered psychologist with the British Psychology Psychological Society, a member of the Division of Occupational Psychology and a practitioner psychologist with the Healthcare and Professional Council, a member of the British Association for Counseling and Psychotherapy and an academic fellow of the Chartered Institutes of Personal Development. He's also the founder of Centaur Operation, and you can look more information on their website, on retreats and courses. They have amazing retreats. They have one in Nihi, in Indonesia uh, now, and they are doing more all over the world next year. So I definitely recommend you check it. And he also uh, leadshorses.com, uh, L-I-T-S-H-O-R-S-E-S, -S -E for our website, and you can see our sessions and courses all over the world. So now... I hope you enjoy my conversation with Andreas. So Andreas, thank you so much for being with us today here at Lead Sex. Um, I've been following you for a while now. Um, your work in Indonesia in the, at Nihi, and also like I've read your book. Um, as I've told you before, I've been working with horses and I've been around horses for a long time as well with Horse Constellations. And your book has actually been like an amazing framework. I will put on the show notes the, the link to it. And I've recommended it to several people because it actually, in my opinion, brings to uh, horse therapies uh, a whole different framework. I know you don't like frameworks and you say that uh, frameworks make the practitioner lazy and I fully agree with that. Um, but uh, it definitely like um, helped me structure a lot of ideas that I had been learning in, in practice. So tell me about your work with horses. What is it? Because I see a lot of people confusing things. They think about horse therapy and they go into, oh, that's equine therapy. And like there are all these uh, different aspects and they think it's physical. So what's your work with horses? Thank you, David. Um, so people kind of, people understand um, art therapy, right? Or music therapy or movement therapy or dance therapy. So people know that there are many, many different ways that we can kind of do therapy or, you know, help people to understand themselves and the way they behave in the world, the way they make decisions in the world without just talking and without just sort of language. So to me, that's one of the ways that horses come, come into it. So horses in the first instance, I would say, are a tool. They are a technique. They are a way to kind of get people to understand themselves, other people, and, and, and they do that through interacting with the horse. So all the work we do is on the ground. There is no, um, there's no riding um, involved. There's absolutely no horsemanship involved um, at all. So I know there's other places that, for example, kind of teach people how to lead a horse or, or any of those kind of things, and that's that's fine. But that's not how how we work. 
how we work is really giving people an opportunity to look at minute details of how they actually develop relationships. And if you develop a relationship with a person, it's really, really hard to kind of figure out what that actually looks like because that person is the same as you. Horses are radically different. And because they're radically different, you actually kind of get a huge amount of information, a huge amount of feedback about, about yourself. So that's, that's the, the baseline on, on how I see the use of, of horses. Um, in a slightly different way, the therapy is sort of decenters the therapist. So um, the horse takes the place of the therapist. And it's really about you know, what is this relationship about and how can we figure out um, what, uh, what's going on for you in that process. What, what can people achieve with it? Like, uh, give me examples of, uh, of some results because I've seen like, um, also then we'll go a little bit more, uh, with, into operation center and, but I've seen like you do all these types of programs from mm -hmm. grief to you work with prisoners, you work all over the world, uh, with companies as well. Uh, what you see are like the key, um, results that people can get from, uh, working with you. Okay, so we get people to come to us when they're stuck. I think that's the key thing that's that kind of organized, sort of everybody who comes is stuck, whether that's a company that's stuck because they're always recruiting the same people um, or whether it's a person who's stuck because they've got complex grief and they can't let go of a certain part of the process or people have done a lot of therapy already. Um, usually people come to us when they're really, where they feel very, very stuck. And in my opinion, horses are all about movement. And um, it's all about moving things from a place that's very static to a place that's much more dynamic. Because most people, when they go into a therapy session, they sit in front of their therapist or their psychologist or their psychiatrist, and then they make eye contact and they look at each other. And usually it's quite a, quite a small sort of consulting room And then you have to start talking about those innermost things that kind of uh, are, are going on for you. So to me, that's not particularly conducive. You know, people are already stuck and then we stick them in this tiny little space and we look at them and then we ask them to kind of talk about things. The things that we ask people to talk about are traumatizing. They're, they're kind of quite difficult things to talk about. Otherwise, people would have talked about them a long time and they would have processed it and they would have been cathartic. Um, people have a huge amount of shame about the things that they want to kind of bring in, in, in therapy a huge amount of time. And that's what stops them from actually talking about, about what, what goes on for them. So with horses, it is very, very different because we don't really, I don't need to know the, the whole story. You know, you're coming to me because you're dealing with some issue. I don't really need to know what that issue really is all about. I'm going to send you out to the horse and I'm going to get you to do something that's very dynamic, that's moving things along. And then I'm going to ask you how you feel about that. That's really the way I think um, that's how the sort of, you know, the, the real power of, of, of horse um, and equine-assisted psychotherapy works. It does not rely on language. If I expand a little bit on, on, on that, you know, if I want to share with you what is going on inside of me right now the only way i can do that is by putting it into words many many people who come and see us can't do that they can't put things into into words either because um they don't have access to that part of themselves yet they don't have a word for how they feel 
or they're too ashamed or too embarrassed to kind of start talking about it. So we send them off straight away to kind of go and, and communicate with horses. Horses don't speak English. They don't speak Spanish. They don't speak Portuguese. They don't speak German. But they're perfect Thank community. <laughs> Again? Thank God. Yeah. But they are incredible communicators. Um, you know, the, if anyone who's been around horses and watching horses, you know, you can see a huge amount of movement going on between horses. Horses are being pushed into their place. Um, they're kind of moved around the herd. And the horses do it to each other without ever, ever touching each other, right? They're just there. They kind of communicate very, very effectively. If they, if they perceive danger, they move together. As a herd, you know, they don't sort of say, excuse me, I think, hang on, I think there's a bit of danger there. Tapping each other on the shoulder, all those kind of things. They move in one moment through that. And we can learn a lot about that. I, I think a lot about ourselves by just kind of going into that way of, of communicating. Um, we do that too. Now, sorry to interrupt. Um, you've mentioned... So horses, one of the great things about horses um, is that um, you're mentioning they don't speak and they tell the truth. Um, now, why horses and not other animals as well? I mean, I've, I've, I've done this with elephants in Bangkok and uh, or just about two hours outside of Bangkok. And then it was well, usually yeah. Botswana yeah. <laughs> as well. I think, I think you know, Elephants can do it. Um, I'm sure cows can, can, can do it. I'm sure any animal that sort of, you know, works in a social hierarchy. And I think specifically what, what, what um, horses bring to it is that they're flight animals. They're very, very similar to us. They're easily scared, right? And I think when people come to therapy, a lot of it is about the anxiety. That's that sort of, you know, people get anxious about themselves. They get anxious about, am I normal? Am I, is there something wrong with me? Should I not be doing these, these kind of things? So it's very easy for us to kind of get quite anxious about ourselves. Same thing with horses. What are horses scared of? People kind of say, oh, horses, my horse is scared of an umbrella. My horse is scared of a white plastic bag. My horse is scared of, you know, whatever. That's not true. Horses are not scared of these items. Horses are scared of the unknown. They are scared of an umbrella because they don't know what the umbrella is. And it sticks out in, in, in such a way that, you know, it scares them. They don't know. Is it going to attack them? Is it going to kill them? Or is it not going to kill them? That's why they kind of spook. We're the same. Our fear is about not knowing what's going to happen in the future, um, what's, what's wrong with us. You know, I think that's really what drives the anxiety. And of course, you know, it's kind of related to whatever experiences we've had, whether there's trauma in our background, you know, all, all, these, all these kind of things. And um, tell me something like, um, for instance, I've seen a couple of, uh, I, I'd love to know like a couple of examples, for instance, um, how do you deal with people with grief and ADHD, for example? Okay. Two different cases. So, yeah, so so loss is is something that we we've we've worked with a lot, complex grief. Um we've worked with and when I say complex grief, I think that's people who who identify that um that perhaps you know there's a loss in their past somehow. So I'm not talking about a normal between quotes, process of grieving, which is, you know, up to two to three years. If you lose someone who's gone, these are people who, who kind of deal with um, grief 
um, probably you know over a decade, and they feel they still can't sort of move 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 on. Um, how do we work? We work a lot with perspective taking. For example, we work we work in small groups. Um, we get people to to kind of look at you know what does the horse represent? Does the horse represent the bereaved person? What would you do with that? Would what, you know how, how would you kind of connect to to that? So there's something in front of you. Um, we we use a lot of gestalt um, ideas, for example, where you know, as you know, you kind of you have your 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 experiments that you you run, and you kind of saying, okay, so let's see if if this horse represents the person that represents the loss for you in your life. Let's do something with that. Let's kind of you know, let's so what do you want to say to them? What what is missing for you? Why do you find it difficult to to kind of let go? through this and then you start processing the, the anger the kind of the loneliness the kind of the sadness the kind of the different kind of processes that's you know i'm i'm thinking of one example with one of the last groups that we we had um a woman complex grief um february quite a lot of mud quite a lot of rain sort of going going on and she went to the horse um to go and connect with with it and she slipped and she fell in probably the biggest puddle in 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 the whole space and she just started laughing. And this was the first time she laughed in probably a decade because she just felt, what else can I do? This is my rock bottom. I'm here in horseshit. I am on my back. I'm in the mud. It's raining. It's cold. This is really my rock bottom. And, you know, and then people started helping her up and she went to the horse and she hugged the horse and she cried and cried and cried and cried. And something shifted something moved on um and that's the kind of thing i think that you can't do very easily in an office it's beautiful when you see that so i work a lot uh, one of my companies actually it's called katrina and we are dealing uh, how to rethink uh, death in society and the funeral industry so um, we've been looking at grief from different perspectives and i've worked uh -huh. a little bit with people with um with horse constellations as well. And I'm going into something um, that I'm really curious. I'm going to jump a little bit, but, uh, but I think it comes a lot um, in relation of what we are speaking now. So you speak about Igala and Epona uh, as two organizations that have very different approaches. Um, and um, you mentioned at a certain point, I've seen like very crazy things happening with the horses uh, where uh, the people really relate to the horses. Uh, if it's someone that is about to pass away or if it's someone that is dead and people really believe that the person is uh, represented in that horse. Actually, I think several people believe that the person is that horse or the spirit is that horse. Uh, when you spoke about Dipona, let me, I have, I had some notes here because you said, I think Epona was like, um, that they were, the note is something like they are afraid of being considered crazy and rightfully so. So what's the role of intuition? How does spirituality come into all this? Because there are very different approaches to to the horse therapies, especially with yeah. grief. Yeah, well, um, I actually had an interview with Linda Kohanov about two months ago, 
and I had a really, really nice chat with her. It was the first time I actually spoke to to her and talked to her. And, you know, I think she's a very knowledgeable, very warm um, person. Um, I think that um, what I was writing at the time was probably me quite quite arduously and quite and, and and quite strongly trying to bring a more robust sort of theoretical and evidence-based frame in into something and sometimes in order to do that you need to push some things out of the way in order to really look at it so for example when, when i started being interested in this field this was maybe in you know the late 90s early 2000s which was at the time when natural horsemanship started coming up, you know, we had the horse whisperers, we had the Monty Roberts, and very, very soon on the back of that, we, we sort of also had the kind of the first starting points of, of um, equine assisted psychotherapy. And, and it, and it was the sort of Epona type type thing. And, you know, it was very West coast America it was very kind of California, Arizona, um, and to me, when I first encountered it and read it, it was just a bit too sort of woo-woo, spiritual, and, you know, and I didn't kind of, and I really couldn't get near that at all. Having said that, now, when I look at it, I have a lot more time for it than I did then. And I think that's probably my, my sort of journey, because I think at that time, I was just, you know, a rookie um, psychologist who, who wanted to bring some rigor to a field that in my mind was was very anecdotal and very all over the place um and and it had certain belief systems that were very difficult to to kind of manage in some ways or to or to grasp you know so i, I think you know i was at that point much more interested in doing randomized controlled trials and looking at evidence-based um sort of outcomes and and all of that and and if we didn't get to that then i was interested in doing um, case studies, so in in-depth case studies, and and following people over a longer period of time to kind of look how how this all affected. But if someone starts saying, like you just just said, the spirit of this person goes in the horse, and then they become the horse, I don't really know what to do with that, right? I mean, I'm sort of no, like thinking, yeah, I'm blown away several times by it. <laughs> like I'm always yeah. like, sometimes things happen that I'm like, whoa, where did this come from? <laughs> and you know, but if someone comes to to therapy and starts talking about they think their spirit is joined with with this horse i'm going to be very interested i'm thinking tell me about it you know what does that well you know what is that like for you let's let me understand it and i'm curious i'm not going to say you know you're you're having a psychotic episode that's not really what i want to do you know we undiagnose many many more people than we actually diagnose and it's 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 sort of you know and to me if if the kind of you know, if you believe that the spirit of a loved one is in this horse and that is very helpful for you, who am I to say that that's not true? I mean, I don't know. Um, it could be, it, it could be, it could be true. It could not be true. I don't know. I'm agnostic to to all all of this. Um, you know, I suppose you know, I was I was brought up a Jesuit, so I think I have that sort of agnosticism in my in my background in in some ways that I want to kind of question. Um, but it doesn't mean that I reject it. And you know. Um, I think, um, look, Linda Koganov said some crazy stuff in, in these early kind of books and things about, you know, the kind of uh, crossing over to the other side and uh, the, the kind of the horse ancestors. And I sort of yeah. felt that you could, you know, you could, 
explain all of this with with different different frameworks um you know uh, you didn't you didn't have to go to spirituality to to explain you know kind of um biology probably was was sufficient or psychology was was sufficient or transference or counter-transference were sufficient concepts to to explain what was going on between between that um so that's maybe where my where my sort of crazy between quotes sort of came came in sorry you know, but uh andres i i really because it, it's it's very interesting like um I'll, I'll tell you so i teach at business school my mom is a doctor my dad is an engineer so i was brought totally in the science part and then i've been uh, traveling all around the world and mexico and i've what I've learned actually was horse constellations, which is mm -hmm. based exactly on all the ancestors and everything. And the first time I go there and I'm like, what's the trick? Because I've been around horses and it's like, they, how can this person know all these things about me without, because I was also very skeptical and almost like testing out, like, let's see, uh, because I've seen so much fraud in like so much uh, spiritual stuff that, I was very curious. And after like the fifth or sixth session, I was like, I surrendered. I was like, I want to learn this. And I always mm -hmm. have a little bit the imposter syndrome. I've given probably over 600 sessions now. And I always have a little bit the imposter syndrome. And I really liked uh, the approach of your book exactly because of that. I think you bring the framework, you call things as they are. And uh, without a lot of bullshit, which I find it's fantastic. Um, I have to tell you from my experience, uh, and I've worked with both um, psychologists and non-psychologists on it with horses, and I think there's a part of intuition to it. And it happened to oh. me, I remember a case of a person um, that I was um, with the horses and the person, and at a certain point, I just say, your dad had uh, a mistress, right? And the person starts crying and goes like, David, nobody knows that. How do you know it? It's impossible. Like it was me and my dad who knew it. And she starts crying. And I'm like, I have no idea how I know that. It just came to me yeah. and I can't interpret like if, oh, the horse moved the right ear of the, so that means the dad had a mistress. So like these things are very, I don't know. I still don't, I'm not able to understand them as well. But also, I think that a lot of what we call magic and spirituality are things that uh, science hasn't reached yet or studied. And from that, I would uh, follow on to what's the scientific research? Because a lot of people question horse therapy as a little bit like, woo, like you were saying. But I think there's not enough research on it as well. And I've been looking for it. Your book has great references. But I think you're, we're at a very early stage no? Sure. I mean, let, let me pick up on, on the kind of the, the sort of spirituality and, and, and all of that. And I yeah. run retreats on, on Nihi and Nihi is, is in Sumba. Um, and Sumba, yeah. the, I think the name of the island means the kind of the spirit of the horse. So, you know, the, the whole kind of the whole island is about is about spirits of horses. And we work very intuitively with a with a whole, with a herd of horses, 27 horses that live in a semi feral way. Um, on the beach there and and all of that so there's something there's something about that being there in that kind of space with those kind of you know the the 
the, the, the sort of the villages around um, the hotel are, you know, animist villages. So, so everybody still kind of believes in kind of animism. That's the sort of the, the kind of the main. So there's there is some Christianity. There's, there is some sort of Islam on the island. But the main thing still is very much about sort of a, um, animism. And it's really interesting to kind of spend time sort of a, around that and to understand these different ways of of making sense of something and and believing something. And I said, and I totally agree. And I think that's proper science as well. It's not because, um, you know, science tries to to kind of reject things. And if it can't reject it anymore, then it accepts it as 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 as, as truth. And I think you know people tend to forget that that's that that's how proper science works that you're not trying to prove something exists you're just actually trying to kind of say that i can't reject this now so therefore i have to hold it mm -hmm. as this is the case now we know that with any kind of psychological research even though we could use the techniques like randomized control trials um, um for example we still you know we are still not you know we're not measuring the effect of caffeine on people's attention span right you know we're, we're still looking at how can an intervention, a relational intervention help work? And the best piece of research that we managed to do was actually in the prisons. So um, because uh, in the prisons, we had a captive audience, if you um, excuse the pun. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it also that uh, um, we could have control groups. And, you know, we would have a control group of people who would participate in some group therapy inside the prison. Then we'd have a, a control group of people who didn't. And then we have a control group of people who kind of came to us and did the equine-assisted um, psychotherapy. Now, I also have to kind of add that the, 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 um, the, the program was more than just psychotherapy. We would also kind of, we would kind of do mindfulness with them. We can kind of do psychological education with them. We do lots of processing groups. And of course, there's also kind of the equine um, work as well. Now, what we showed was hugely significant results in, in how the people who kind of were in our equine group were, you know, statistically massively significant to the others in terms of self-esteem going up, self-efficacy um, going up, uh, people feeling much better equipped with the with the um, outside world. Their locus of control kind of shifted a lot more to an internal locus of control, meaning that they felt they had a lot more agency to operate in the world, that they weren't just blaming society and, and, and everybody else around that. So we, we had some very, very nice psychosocial kind of outcomes um, from that and sort of social cognition, cognitive outcomes as well. But the best one, I think, is still to this day, because we are still kind of following that cohort, is that none of them reoffended, right? And that's that's been going well, on for about or eight years. I'd like for and, you to, sorry, I'd love for you to, I think we have a little delay here, but um, I would love for you to tell about um, what's the reoffending um uh, statistics because people I think they are often not aware that most people that go to jail they reoffend so that's very impressive the result yeah and I think what what happens was that I mean I don't I don't have the the, the data on on how reoffending works but the the group of, of of prisoners that we were working with were what was called revolving door prisoners they would they would yeah. kind of they wouldn't have huge long sentences, but they would kind of continuously come come back into into prison. And for us to be able to have um, that group, that is, you know, again, what science does is science goes, you know, it's not by chance that this is happening. We can only kind of call this 
you know, it's not by chance that you're going to start seeing this. And those are the kind of things that we we had. Now, do we have very clear understanding of why this happened or what has not happened? Um, I think, you know, it's still, as you said, early days to kind of form all of this. But I think there is something about the fact that horses signify something very, very powerful. And one of the most, I think, important things that I feel like I can say about about equine assisted psychotherapy is that when we connect with a horse, we don't just connect with an animal, we also reconnect with a disavowed part of ourselves. And, and I think this is really where where I think the power lies. We kind of reconnect and we become a little bit more fully us. You know, we kind of perhaps we can we can kind of connect with a bit that we didn't want to look at or we can reconnect with a bit that actually was very positive about ourselves. And one of the big things that we found in the prisons was hope. People started reconnecting with hope and feeling that so memories would come back where they would talk about um, having their granddad take them to see a horse and the smell of the horse's breath reminded them of being a little girl who could kind of sit on the back of a horse and they in this pretty gloomy and dark space of a prison all of a sudden people started reconnecting that actually their life wasn't just black and white their life was did actually have some really positive aspects into it and if you don't have that as a psychologist or a psychotherapist to kind of bring being able to kind of anchor something in in those positive sort of elements then you know you can't work you know you, you know there, there has to be you have to find the light in the darkness in order to kind of to and, to to sort of facilitate growth and um i'd love to know a little bit more about you now because okay. the work you've been doing it's fantastic uh, first, like, thank you for bringing all these techniques and all these tools to more people, but also like, I think pushing the, the field forward. Um, I was very impressed by all the different type of work you do from young people, bullying, um, prisoners, um, you do like grief leadership that we'll talk about, which is a topic that I'm very interested in as well. How did you come across it? And what's your mission? What drives you every day? Because like going, it's like going into prisons with horses. It's like you have a lot more profitable and easier venues. It's like you have to have a passion for it. You just don't do it because it's like it's easy. So how did you come across um, horses as a tool? Because you have like um, a very formal education on, on psychology as well. And what drives you? Okay. I, I mean, f first of all, I have to kind of say like probably like everybody, I have a blind spot um, to like, you know, what my own motivation is in some ways and, and around that. And as you were talking, I was actually thinking to myself, thinking, yeah, why do I make things so difficult? You know, it, you're absolutely right. And it's like, you know, um, you know, even, even with, you know, running the retreats in Sumba, um, it was this, I mean, you know, Sumba is a very difficult place to get to from, from Europe and from America, you know, it's, 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 it's yeah, difficult to get to from America. I'm trying to join you, but it's just, just the way there was like insane. <laughs> 
it's a very difficult place. Like, I was thinking, why do I kind of, you know, set this up in the, one of the most difficult places in the same way that, you know, why do I do this in a, in a prison? As you say, you know, I could probably do far more lucrative and easier kind of thing. So, I, I mean, I, I sort of have to think about, about, about that one. But other than that, where, how did I kind of bring this? I tried for a very long time to keep horses and, and psychology and psychotherapy separate in my mind until it became very, very obvious that, you know, there was something, there was something much more there. I'm a lifelong horseman. I've been around horses all my life. Um, there is, um, you know, I know what horses represent to me. And I know, right? yes, yeah, you know, I um, I rode about four hours today. Um, so, you know, ride, riding is definitely for me, my sort of, that's how I detox. I just kind of, you know, take a horse out and just ride. And, uh, you know, I'm very lucky to to be in Richmond Park in London, um, which, um, you know, is is probably the best sort of riding that you can have in any kind of a capital city. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I sort of I've always known that that relationship with the horse was 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 special. Um, I suppose autobiographically, I think, you know, my 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 parents divorced when I was about 12. And I think at that point, um, I would spend I would not talk to anybody much. And I would spend all my time with horses and with my horse at the time. And uh, actually with another horse um, that I was very, very close to and very fond of. And there was something about that kind of, you know, that connection. And I suppose at the time I would I would have called it being understood in some kind of way. Now I'd probably kind of too careful to kind of using words like, you know, being understood by a horse. And I probably wouldn't kind of put it in those kind of terms. But then I sort of felt very much there was, you know, um, you know, stable has 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 multiple meanings, doesn't it? You know, it kind of you know, it can be a place where you put a horse, but it also means stability, and 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 feeling that there's some sort of structure in there. And I think for me, that definitely was 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 both. I liked sp spending time in in that space, and even you know, around that age, I wasn't actually doing a huge amount of of riding at all. I just wanted to be with with the horses, and and just felt felt sort of connected. Um, and I think as we get older we probably tend to lose that connection i think children and young people have far more the ability to to kind of connect with an outside world around them they're much more attuned to 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 what's happening uh, in the world around them a little bit like when you when you sort of you know you you go into a meeting for example and you kind of walk into the meeting and you kind of think gosh there's a bit of an atmosphere here you know what what just happened you know we don't know how we know that but we do know that something shifted something's happened you know if you come home i don't know you go and visit your parents at the way they say hello to you or not say hello or whatever happens around it you kind of think oh maybe there's something not quite right here there's something off and you know we share that and i think that's what i would call intuition in in a way you know for me that's really it's a kind of you know if I had to put another word to it, I'd probably put the word energy onto it. And I also do that grudgingly because I think energy is such a flaky word and I don't really totally. want to uh, use it. Um, but I don't have another way of, of sort of expressing it. So connection. I think in my book and, and in general, I, I talk about how we connect. How do we connect in a nonverbal way with the world um, around us. And then once we kind of look at our connections around that, we can kind of look at, you know, how we are interconnected. 
And through sort of studying and the various trainings I did and the various academic sort of things I, I, I did, I got more and more cerebral, I think, you know, I sort of, you know, in my head as people tend to, to get, you know, far more cognitive, you're far more um, analytical um, and the horses kind of kept being there, but they weren't really, they weren't really um, to the fore. And I think, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, the time when I was kind of looking at it, everything I saw, I just kind of, I couldn't really see myself doing this because I, I thought, no, this is, I know there's something here. And then I met this incredible woman called Star Lee and uh, she was working with um, ex-Navy SEALs in Jacksonville, just north of Miami. And uh, she was, uh, and, they, and they had they had seen a lot, you know, of, of action in theaters of war, in Afghanistan and Iraq at the time, and they were deeply, deeply traumatized. You know, they kind of you know, PTSD, the most severe PTSD that I probably I had ever kind of experienced at at, at that time. And these guys, because they were they were mainly male, they were all male. I think the ones I, I kind of I kind of saw would rock up at her ranch and park out, and they would go out and sort of. Um, be with these horses sometimes they would not send a single word to any other people around except for when they walked out and they'd go that was amazing thank you very much and i think and at that point i started seeing what actually was going on and that's how i developed my model at the time starly was totally working from an intuitive basis she was just very very intuitively very patiently providing in the sort of in the best humanistic sort of rogerian person-centered way she was holding a frame and really accepting and these horses were part of that and it was amazing the work that she did so i thought i want to spend my time trying to figure out how this works and <coughs> excuse me and that's i think why I did all these different things where I kind of thought, okay, I can, I want to research, I want to understand how this works with kids on the spectrum. I want to understand how this works in prisons. I want to understand how this operates in schools. Um, I also, I mean, I, I see things in systems a lot of the time, you know, I sort of, I want to understand, you know, it's like if someone comes in with a diagnosis of anorexia, for example, or any of the eating disorders, I don't see that person as, you know, having the kind of the eating disorder. I see that person as expressing something with their body in a context, in a family. Um, and we need to understand this as as a family and as and as a group and and with with multiple professionals around it. And I think that that interconnectivity is really important um, to me. And we, we have amazing results with with that, um, with, and with that approach. And horses and and how much have, have um does it work for you as well do you use them for you as well because you went you go through all these experience do you think because one of the things that i've noticed is like how much i learn as well when i go and give sessions it's how much i learn mm -hmm. about myself uh, i remember when i was studying um that uh my my teacher told me look Actually, uh, we take so long because teaching you the technique is, a, is not that hard. The hard part is for you to get to know yourself so you can actually be less biased and be more centered on it. Um, and sure. I'm always like, um, 
impressed on how much I learn about myself when I give sessions as well. How does it work for you? Do you use it on a regular basis consciously or um, you separate yourself from it? Well, I, I don't separate myself from it. Of course, I don't separate myself from it. Um, I did early on in my training, I did um, 10 and a half years of um, Freudian psychoanalysis three times a week on the couch. Um, mm -hmm. So that was a very, very lengthy, um, thorough process, I think, to kind of, you know, it was never supposed to be that long. It was always supposed to be five or six years sort of thing. It It, it just ended up taking a lot longer and, and, and just kind of being, you know, it was all of a sudden 10 and a half years before I think we sort of really knew it. So I think I have spent a lot of time trying to and working on understanding sort of myself. Um, do I learn something in every session I do? No, I think I work incredibly hard in the sessions to facilitate things. Um, and I, do I kind of learn about myself in it? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Some, what I do learn a lot about in all the sessions is about horses. Um, because horses, I'm not going to say horses are surprise me every day, but they surprise me at least once a week where I sort of thought, wow, I've never seen you do that. And that's an extraordinary connection to make. Or there's a you know, sort of a, you know, um, last week, um, a horse would, um, someone who's quite scared of horses, didn't want to go near them um, and just went and put its head right on this person's chest. And um, and I'm thinking, gosh, you know, I've never seen you do that. You've never you've never done that. You know, it's sort of a there's definitely you're connecting there in 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 some ways. And it was a, a really quite moving uh, moment. But you know, I don't interpret it. You know, it's like it 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 does something for me at that time. Mm -hmm. Like I could kind of like I reframe my understanding of this particular horse, um, for example. Um, and of course, I want to see how how the um how the other person kind of responds to it you know how does my patient respond to to that and that's entirely up to up to them you know if they you know for them this could be not a moving thing at all um but that's also data for me right if i find something moving and they don't find it moving then that's also data and um um now Tell me a little bit more like how your sessions work, because you, you said you work incredibly hard during your sessions. Um, you go into a session. What's your what's your process there? Because, for instance, when you mentioned uh, Igalas, which is a much more like see how the, the behavior change and everything. First, do you always use horses, you know, or can you do it with any horse? And then like there's a there are a lot of things to pay attention to. Um, how do you know how to pay attention, what to pay attention to? And you take notes so that you can follow through to different sessions. Yeah. So we always start with an assessment session. So, um, and typically the work we do is quite short term. So we kind of, we kind of have an assessment followed by six uh, treatment sessions. And what I've really sort of, you know, what I work to is um, 
the model I've developed over over, over the years is basically kind of saying there are these components um, that we can very usefully sort of look at. And the first one we always look at is uh, safety um, because, you know, you are working with flight animals that um, kind of, you know, weigh over 750 kg and, and there are sort of real dangers uh, involved potentially. You know, all horses can kick, all horses can bite. But what it really allows you to do, it allows you to help people position themselves in the world. It helps you to kind of get them to understand of how do they actually uh, keep themselves safe. So the safety briefing um, becomes something far, far more um, important. Uh, it becomes a self-care sort of analysis almost. Andreas, uh, just because on your book, you actually mentioned that safety. Um, maybe I'm misreading it but uh but i actually liked how, how you wrote it there in the sense yeah. you're coming into a place with horses or a field with horses or wherever you're doing the session and your people can't control the animals like you say my team can't be responsible for it so people are responsible for their yeah. safety as well um did They're you change your mind since then because you You're telling me that your book was from 2015. And one thing I've been appreciating yeah. in the conversation is you've been your evolving your ideas. But it's actually a worry that many people have. Then there's liability when you're uh, dealing with clients and so on. Um, have, you, have you changed your approach to safety? Not at all. Uh, not at all. And, in, 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 you know, I think it's, it's, uh, it's very, very important to, to make people very accountable. Um, And, and experience that because a lot of us now have forgotten what that's actually, you know, there's always someone else to blame or there's always someone else to, to be responsible around something. And we position that from the very beginning, very, very clearly is that this is a dangerous thing to, to do potentially. Um, and I cannot keep you safe in, in all of this. Um, you know, you have to do that by yourself. And that's to do with my horses, but of course, it's also to do with, you know, psychologically, can I keep everybody safe? Now, of course, if that results in a huge amount of anxiety that we can't do any work, we need to kind of look at that, right? We need to kind of look at because, you know, people need to get some kind of reassurance. So we kind of have to maybe look at, you know, working um, behind a barrier or working outside of the stable or, you know, we kind of just looking at, you know, because I say, Horses don't care whether you're in a field with them or you're just on the other field standing on the other side of the fence. They don't care. Um, you know, it's like you're still going to get the connection. You're still going to be there and all of that. So it's more systematic. I mean, we've had people um, coming to see us and, um, you know, one, one person I'm thinking of in particular hadn't left their house uh, for two and a half years. So they didn't just automatically just come. They would kind of come to park the car and we would take a horse to the car and we'd talk through the window and probably did that for about three sessions. We had a kind of, you know, the, the session came to, in, in the car park with the horse next to the car until that person was ready to kind of make that move outside and, and all of that. But, you know, That's how that's how we work. We work with, you know, whatever you bring, your pace will kind of help it. But what horses do, and there's another thing I think that we kind of, you know, that's why we've always 
as humans relied on horses horses speed things up they make things go faster you know that's why we're interested in horses you know we can we, we can go from a to b running ourselves or we can take horses and go to a to b really faster and that's exactly the same thing they do in therapy um because there's no there's no flannel around it what you see is what you get you know you, and the only thing you have to kind of get people to do is kind of saying look in the mirror can you see and if people are willing to look in the mirror um they can do that very very quickly and learn a huge amount about them horses don't judge horses don't care really they don't care what you've done or you know what they care is that you are what you are horses don't like um people who um are very anxious but pretend to be really really you know strong or cool kids or whatever because it confuses them they don't understand what that's like you know they're kind of you know but if you're anxious fine if you're angry fine they know how to cope with that they don't judge it in the same way that yeah. they don't judge a horse in the field that's sort of, you know a horse a dominant horse pushes um you know a more subordinate horse in the herd off the food People look at it, go, oh, look, he's bullying that horse. He's not bullying that horse. It's just that's how they operate. The, the, that horse doesn't sit there then thinking, you know, um, I'm going to I'm going to get you back. You know, I'm going to plot your downfall. I'm going to, you know, gang up, get all the other horses to gang up on you and all the rest of it. No, horse accepts that that's, okay, that's just what happens now. That's what we're doing. They're not kind of saying, you know, asshole or this or the other. They just accept that that's what, what, what's happening. Um, I, it's I a love very you. Human I love the approach and, and sorry, because I thought it was such a smart comment on the frameworks that you had on the book, because I always tell my students, it's like when you have models, they are just to give you structure and the base, but they, mm -hmm. it's not one size fits all. And I love the example, like the person didn't leave the house for two and a half years. They go to the car, they park the car and you take the horse there. So there's like no framework around that, but it's like exactly yeah. like each situation is a situation and, um, and you adapt to it. So I think that's a great example that I keep telling my students. It's like, you can't take the frameworks and just apply them at face value, use what you can from it, but go from there. So Andreas, um, you mentioned also, um, I think there are a lot of confusions on the different types of uh, therapies that people can do with horses. You also speak about the difference between psychotherapy and coaching, uh, especially coaching, I think, is a, is a term that uh, has been thrown all over the place in the last few years, that everyone is a coach now. Can you please make the differentiation between them. I really like the way, the way you talk about it on the, um, on the book. And I would love to know how you, um, how your work, how would you classify your work? If you can classify it, if it's a mix between the two, if it's uh, a third option, how do you see it? Well, I think, I mean, it depends what, what I'm asked to do, I think, is is would be the the kind of because, you know, I am, I am, you know, a, a psychologist. I'm a, I'm a I'm a therapist. I had two different trainings in 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 psychotherapy. So, I you know that's the kind of the big main paradigm I use to make sense of of the world and how people behave in it and and 
and and all of this and i started coaching um in the sort of late 90s i would say when coaching really wasn't the thing yet you know there was there wasn't really um a lot a lot going going on with with that and the first the first um coaching job i had was for a chief executive of a uh large um us based conglomerate who who had a new ceo taking over emea and um who needed a coach and i was i was um introduced to to them and i started working with them but i had no idea what coaching was at that at that time i was i was just seeing it as a kind of psychological approach to understanding yourself and of course i knew a lot about about that so i started and i think i i actually discovered quite quickly um what the difference what the difference was um and um the difference was that uh, and then i started you know obviously working coaching a couple of 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 um very senior people and um they all left and they all um stopped being corporate and um you know sort of some bought a farm others um set up a, a small business that they wanted to run and and all of this and of course you know the um because of course the company pays me they didn't pay me to to do this they were quite concerned because it's costing me a lot of money having to, to kind of bring these people in. And I, I suppose it was at that point that I then realized that this was probably not what people had in mind um, because I was really dealing with them as a therapist. And I was kind of looking at them, kind of, you know, what do you want to do with your life? You know, do you understand why you're doing this? Uh, it's a bit like, you know, you asking me earlier, um, you know, why do you pick all the difficult things? You know, why don't you kind of go for the low hanging fruit on, on stuff? So, and then I started realizing this is there's, there's another task here in the coaching, which is that there's an, an organizational party in this as well. And then I started really rethinking and then became, I think, a lot different in the way I started working with people, which is basically saying, OK, my role as a coach is to ensure that that person uh, doesn't derail that, you know, um, people who are at the very, very top in an organization are not normal in in the sense that you know they're two more than two standard deviations removed from the mean right they are quite extraordinary people in in many ways so you can't deal with them you know they're kind of their flaw makes them phenomenal the kind of the flaws that they have whatever those flaws are drives them and makes them I mean, and it could be you know, a deep insecurity that they're not even aware of or it could be some whatever it is they're kind of you know and I suppose the job of a coach is really to kind of get those people to continue to to work and to perform at that kind of level without really damaging themselves. And that's how I saw the coaching working and to make sure that the kind of the, so therefore the, the, the third leg of the stool, as it were, the organization also gets what, what they want. So you're there as a sort of more of a, as a hygiene factor, really, to kind of making sure that you kind of, so that's that would have that was sort of developmentally how I I learned about what's the difference between psychotherapy and 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 coaching, and I still today but, kind of think that that's probably. It. But you mentioned that uh, there's um, uh, psychotherapy is more towards the past, and uh, coaching uh, more towards the future. One of them, and coaching can be a little bit more directive i would say like more action based would you agree with that 
Um, to a certain extent, I mean, it's because because I understand people from from these many different things it doesn't mean that I necessarily kind of decide to to work from it. So, for example, I may get a sense that there's probably some unresolved issues with someone in past relationships or whatever it was. And I would use that to inform how I work, but I wouldn't actually take the person there to start working through them and to start work and processing them. So, you know, I would I would kind of clock it. I would be aware of it, but I wouldn't necessarily work with it because I also feel that I probably would, I have not contracted with that person to actually do that kind of depth work right now. That person mm-hmm. is wanting to, to do something on on an, a certain outcome. Now, does that mean that I'm more directive? Not necessarily. Um, I still have this very, very strong sense that, you know, we, what we're doing really is we're in a sort of helping profession, right? We're in, we're in a, you know, whether we're a psychologist or a coach or a psychotherapist, we're all kind of in this kind of helping profession. What I think is none of our business is change. Change has nothing to do with us whatsoever. Change is solely the patient or the client's business. We can kind of help them understand something of themselves and of a situation differently, but it's not up to us to tell them what to do, how to do it, or even if they want to, to kind of do it, you know, so, and that goes to say someone with OCD who kind of, you know, washes their hands 20 times in bleach uh, every day so they can kind of feel safe and all of that. You have to admit sometimes that that's maybe the best that person can can, can do um, and you will not get them beyond, beyond that. And, you know, trying to kind of shift or change or whatever makes you not very effective as a as a professional in, in that because you're, you're really pushing at the wrong thing. Um, what you can do is is with everybody is to kind of use the time and the space that you have to help people understand a little bit more about themselves because i firmly believe that it's the greater understanding of self that will actually allow other decisions to be made if that's what they choose to do but it's none of my business okay so you don't um for instance you wouldn't get like um help people structure like an action plan that's the person's responsibility after okay to control and yeah. um when you're working with companies you work in 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 the same way like the leadership programs you do and um it's the same thing you help them understand but you don't help them get like to the conclusions or or to where they should go because one of the things i've there's no. a there's a really there's a there's a sentence actually i've learned it on um with with some shamans here um, on some ceremonies I've done in the past. And there's a, a great sentence that I like, which is the ceremony starts when the ritual ends. And I use it a lot for the horses as well, which is, well, you can come here, see how great you are inside and all the potential you have and figure out all your issues. But if once the therapy ends, um, you don't act on it, it's bas- it's not useless, but the impact is not going to be that great. So how do you recommend or what's your, how should people, is there a homework? How should people follow through or you're done with the session and that's it? 
Yeah. No, I mean, I fundamentally believe that the real work is done outside of the session, mm -hmm. for sure. You know, that, uh, that's where the real work is. The kind of the session is the session, but the real work starts between the sessions. Um, and the real work really is, is right at the end of the therapy, which is one of the reasons I think that I don't really want to, to kind of get, you know, involved with, with that. That is none of my business. I can only really kind of, you know, if I start suggesting to people what might be the best thing for them to do, I can only really extrapolate from what I think the best thing to do is or what, you know, some evidence might show the best thing to do, but that may not work for them. You know, that may not suit them. Or even if it is the best thing, they may not ever be able to kind of pull it off in that kind of way. They have to choose for themselves and they have to kind of, you know, accept something or change something. And those are the two big things. So the, the only thing I think I can hand people as, as the kind of the takeaway from my sessions is curiosity. Can I see... Can I get people to see that being curious about yourself and other people and the world is actually something that is the gift that keeps on giving? But closing it down and thinking that you've understood something, I think that's really where you kind of start, you know, closing knowledge down um, too much. So keeping that that open, um, I think, is really, really important. Keep people curious. And um, what makes a good therapist, in your opinion? Uh, well, someone who's curious for sure, um, who is who is interested in in um, things. I mean, I can tell you what doesn't make a good therapist. I mean, someone who wants to help other people is not a good therapist. That's a person who needs a lot of therapy. Um, you know, we you know you don't if you if you want to help if you want to rescue you need to understand what drives you to kind of help and and, and rescue because you're going to be doing it for you rather than for the people you're 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 working with so um so i think someone who who goes in in there with a very very open mind um and also who has other things to to do i think this is partly why i'm my whole life and nobody who who works in my team solely does this kind of work they all they all have other interests as well and i think that's really important you can't just do this as the only thing that you do because you're going to burn out you have to do other things you have to lecture you have to teach you have to you know do you know be an artist do whatever it is that you kind of want to do but you cannot just do this and knowing that and knowing how to look after yourself i think is also really really important the renaissance men 360 sure. to humanity. <laughs> and what makes For a good sure. patient? Um, okay. Um, someone who, I think openness, I'm going to say openness to kind of, you know, someone who, who is um, also willing to go with you in, in to, to, to a place, you know, kind of someone who, who kind of might say, like, for example, I don't mind working with people who are very skeptical. In fact, I love working with people who are very skeptical um, because they're usually the first ones to kind of think, oh, my God, I never thought this was going to be possible. Right. So you kind of, you know, the people who are very skeptical, particularly of working with the horses, love it because you're kind of thinking, yeah, we're going to have some really, really quick early wins with with this because 
I am confident in the process, right? I can, I, and I, I know what happens when you put people and horses together. Um, you know, stuff happens, and you know, people get surprised, and uh, um, and it gives you an opportunity because what what, what do you do? You, you're kind of, you know, you, it's like a microcosm of something, isn't it? Kind of, even if people kind of say, well, that horse is really, you know, yeah. that horse walks away from me, and you know, clearly it's really, it's already bored and stuff like that, and you kind of thinking, okay. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about you know how you see the world in 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 a way and you know, kind of you know is that something happens a lot to you, um, you know and and is that you know in what what basis does that belief have? Why did you not think that the horse maybe was inviting you to go along with wherever they were going? You know what are the other hypotheses around it? And then people kind of go, oh, I hadn't really thought about that. So maybe I have got this pattern that I tend to kind of put myself down that I don't find myself very interesting. That I think other people are much funnier and wittier than I am. And and and, and think okay, and now we're working. Do you know? I can get to these sort of things within 10 or 15 minutes on the first session and assessment. This stuff could take years to come out in a consulting room um, for people to be able to be, you know, have enough courage to actually say that to the person sitting in front of them. But here they've just spoken it because a horse just did to them what their worst nightmare was, Uh, you know, being rejected, being left behind, being abandoned. And uh, there you have it bang it's out and i think it wasn't that bad was it yeah just kind of you know so what maybe it's a grumpy horse yeah maybe you know didn't like your aftershave <laughs> and um would love to go a little bit more in detail now uh, about operation centaur like um if you could tell us a little bit more that's the organization i think i believe it was founded in 2005 and it's the organization right. you use to develop your work um can you tell us a little bit more about it, the team? And I'd love to know how you spend your time because um, from being in the UK, in Bangkok, in Indonesia, it's like, how how do you organize your life with all these activities as well? Yeah, so yes, I, I founded it officially. I mean, I had, as I said, I had already been researching and doing some work much, much earlier than that. But 2005 was really the kind of the, the, the foundation time with it. And... Um, I started working um, mainly with with some of the sort of mental health hospitals, um, psychiatric institutions that were quite local to us um, and working with with some people there who were very open minded, some psychiatrists who were very, very open minded to kind of and that sort of we developed a lot from that. So in the beginning, of course, it was just just me um, who was doing it with um, with an assistant um, I had. And then quickly, we kind of, I thought, okay, well, this is, you know, um, there are only certain things that I can do. Um, like, for example, um, I'm not a child psychotherapist or child psychologist. So I thought, you know, I, that's not what I want to do. Um, it's not because it's horses that, you know, it's like for everybody. So I started looking for um, different members who can do that. So I've got now I have got um, specialists who, who do child psychotherapy. And so I've always been going, you know, I'd rather have the person who has the skill set already. I can teach them the horse piece. You know, I teach people how to do equine assisted psychotherapy. So they can kind of work with me. They can come alongside with me. So now we have a, a team of, of, of six um, sort of clinical psychologists and psychotherapists um, who do amazing work. And they all sort of specialize in their own 
sort of field from, you know, addiction uh, through to eating disorder, through to uh, working with children and, 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 and young adults. Um, and then, you know, the general kind of, you know, um, depression, um, personality disorders, you know, all, all, all of that. So I, I still run um, my own clinics as well, because I, I always fundamentally believe that, you know, you can't really remove yourself from that. But I do spend more of my time now trying to kind of develop um, different aspects of, 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 of the work, um, like the retreats, for example, was a logical next step for, for us to, to look at. Um, because it's, it's, um, you know, working with horses is such an extraordinary methodology, um, that I just thought there's no, there's no retreat structure around that. So when like Nihi and I got together, uh, it was just like, yeah, this, this just made so much sense, uh, for both of us to, to kind of start doing that. And then, you know, the outcomes from, from that have been extraordinary. You know, it's, it's, it's easy for someone to kind of say, oh, this changed my life. Um, but we have every single person who's gone yeah. through the retreat very, very honestly says this has changed my life. I've, you know, I never thought that I was going to get this much out of it. So it's a very Where nice. Are you doing the um, You're doing the retreat in Nihi. You have one now in November, 2023. How often do you do it there and where else in the world do you do it? So Nihi, we tend to go back um, um, twice, twice per year. So we've, we've, we've been there. This is the third one, uh, third trip to, to Nihi. Um, at the moment, we're looking at um, the Middle East. So looking into Abu Dhabi, which is on the cards for 2024. And um, Italy, we've got a very exciting place that I can't really tell you about just yet. Um, but a very, very exciting place um, with some incredible, incredible um, horses. Um, amazing. Uh, so... I think the criteria that we're looking for is we, we we want to find horses that are kept in a in a natural environment that sort of you know that can function as a herd. Horses need to be happy in a herd, so you know, that that's really one of the things that we kind of look at first first and foremost. And then we also kind of look at you know how how are these horses treated? How are they? You know, are they just an afterthought for this hotel or this resort, or are they actually a very very core part of how things are done here? Um, and so one of the things I learned, um, probably to kind of answer your question in the beginning, you know, what makes me tick and all of that, what did I learn from, from all of that is to kind of, to do things a little bit quieter. So had I been doing this 15 years ago, I would have already probably set up, you know, 10 retreats a year, doing them all over the place and then rushing and then complaining that I was jet lagged and I had to do yet another, um, I think, the retreats are very, very much um, for me, actually, in the sense that um, I really enjoy doing them because I, I can, you know, I'm involved in the selection process. When people apply to come, I already get to know them at that point. I can advise whether this is a useful retreat for them to go on or whether this is not perhaps suited um, for, for them at this stage in their life, you know, and I can build these kind of relationships and I can design the the sort of the guest list almost i can design the people that we're putting together to come uh to these amazing places and to to do this kind of learning um with us and it it just makes me feel 
pretty good about it. I'm thinking, yeah, it's it's nice to be able to to do this kind of work um, and to to spend time with horses in some of the most awesome places in the world. Oh, fantastic! And uh, and when it um, comes to corporate work, usually, um, yeah. actually, a question before that. How many horses do you usually work with? And it's a one-on-one -on -one basis, um, one client with a horse. Do you have more group activities? Because you speak a lot about herds and you were just mentioning that you want herds, that the horses are happy in the herd and so on. A lot of the therapies are done in more like uh, um, restricted environments. Let's put it like that. Um, how do you usually work? Do you work with the herd in itself? Do you work with like a smaller number of horses? one-on-one, -on -one, more a group dynamic? How does it work? I think it, 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 it's um, a variety. I mean, I have I have 32 horses in London. So um, some of them were, live in, a, in a, a natural herd. Others are a herd, but they're not always together. Um, and it depends on the kind of work that we, we do. Um, um, sometimes we get people to choose a horse, which I think can be very, very... Um, very powerful thing to to do. Like again, in Nihi, for example, we one of the first things we do is we we hike up one of the hillsides so we overlook um, the beach, and then the horses kind of come run up from the beach onto the hillside. So people have this overview of this herd of horses running on the beach, and they start identifying with you know who who do you identify with. The ones in the front, the one in the middle, the one with the limp at the back, um, you know, the one that sort of keeps kicking the others, you know, who, who are you in this, you know, who, which which one of these horses kind of speaks to you, which which one do you want to know better? And then we give the opportunity to just kind of go and meet them and just kind of go, you know, pick one, just pick one that you want to kind of work with. And then you work with those horses on a one-to-one -one basis and, uh, you know, um, with a family, for example, you know, if we do family work, um, there's typically uh, two therapists um, with that work with the family and multiple horses as well, unless we want to model, for example, you know, what is it like to be the odd one out? So we have one horse and, uh, you know, the, the horse is the odd one out and who identifies with being the odd one out in this family, for example, you know, um, there's lots and lots of different ways of, 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 of working. Um, you know, corporates, I, I like working with bigger groups of horses as well, um, because there's a lot more about sort of, you know, how, how can you kind of get everybody to work together, for example, it's easier to kind of get one horse to work with you. If you have to get, bring a herd of horses together, you also have to deal with the dynamic within that herd, not just with the dynamics of the people um, that bring them. So there's many, many different ways that I work um, with. Um, or, or you know one-to-one -one. and you know we do we do non-verbal work as well it's like you know sometimes sometimes you work with people the only thing they really want to start to do with the work is to just feel their belly pushing against the big belly of the horse and feeling the warmth and feeling the breathing and finding the heartbeat and just connecting with this big other thing outside your yourself um which could be very cathartic for people and um, I could stay here for hours, um, so I think we'll definitely have to do like a next episode. Um, where do you see the the field going, and where would you like it to to go from here? And a little bit understanding what are your future plans? You have the retreats that you mentioned, uh, but what are you, what excites you about your work now and about what's coming? 
So I think the um, the big thing that's coming now is that um, equine assisted psychotherapy is here to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's um, a lot of it is now people know it. People ask for it. People will go and sort of say, "Do you think equine?" might work for me they go to their psychiatrist their psychiatrist refer them to to us that didn't happen five years ago you yeah know, people didn't that know i've, I've that, been seeing uh, i have like waiting lists and people writing me from all over the world like can i do a session it's like i don't have the time right now like it's just like but before it would be like what's this thing oh this is just like some crazy idea or some crazy therapy but now actually even a lot of CEOs are actually reaching out to me because of my work both in, with horses and in business schools. A lot of people are reaching that before they would just think I was crazy. Yeah. So, you, you know, we've now, we're now in a position that we don't have to justify our existence. So I think that's, that's sort of yeah. number one. And I think, therefore, I think my sort of probably next step is to, to kind of look at how can I, you know, because I'm, you know, I've been a professor f- for the last 20 something years. Um, you know, I, I have the skills to design courses, qualifications, all those kind of things. So I think probably the next thing would be to kind of bring equine assisted psychotherapy more firmly to a postgraduate footing, because if you look at all the other trainings, are also are all at masters or doctoral level uh, in 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 the trainings. So I think why not? You know, fifty years ago when art therapy first started becoming a thing, maybe sixty, seventy years ago, there were no qualifications for it at all, and it lasted probably a couple of decades before the qualifications would come. And you know, the qualifications that are now around are not really qualifications. They're just you know membership organizations that kind of you know kind of train you a bit in their model and then they kind of move 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 on with it i mean it's like you know we train people as well because there's no you know people want to know what it's like and we kind of think okay well come and come and do some training with with us and and find out but they're not the proper qualifications you know the people who come and call themselves psychotherapists is because they're already psychotherapists is because they're already (laughs) clinical psychologists so they just upskill in the kind of you know continuing professional development sort of thing what i really i think want to be able to do is if someone kind of grows up and says i want to become an equine assisted psychotherapist i think in the next five years we should be able to kind of say this is the pathway to do that you do your undergraduate degree here you do your master's degree here and if you want to do a doctorate you can do a doctorate here and it can all be specifically just looking at how horses work within the um, mental health provision, um, et cetera. So I think that's probably where I want to to go to next. And do you think it's exclusive a psychotherapy uh, area? No, um, but I think that's where I can make the contribution um, the, the, the most, I think. I think, um, you know, there are... There's, there's opportunities for coaching, of course, uh, mm-hmm. as well. But I think if we look at, you know, the roots of coaching lie in in psychotherapy and in psychology. Yeah. And I think at the moment we need to kind of, I think we need to work it from that basis. We have to kind of, you know, I think we need to go to the most solid base that we have in order to understand what we're actually building on. And I think that still is... Um, 
psychotherapy and psychology. Okay. Even for coaching, because a lot of the coaching we are seeing nowadays are not, um, is not actually, ba uh, it's based on, on, but doesn't require the, um, the formal education on it. Yeah. I mean, I think that will, that will be the next wave for sure. I think that'll be the next wave. Um, I think that, you know, would I, would I see, if I wasn't a psychologist or a psychotherapist, could I do the same work as I'm doing? No, I can't because there are certain things that I bring. And I'm not saying that that's a better or a, or a, or a worse yeah, yeah. way. It's just that I, I would not be able to, to, to kind of do that. Um, so if I look at, you know, where can I make a contribution? I can only really make a contribution of where my knowledge base is, mm. where my skill sets lies and um and then work from there and then there's other people who can be fellow travelers and pick up pieces of this project and do their own thing with it and and all of that and i think that's the sort of you know i think one of the one of the ways i think i'm probably different now than i was 20 25 years ago 20 25 years ago i was very much more sort of about you know uh, my ego probably and wanting to do this you know myself and all of that and and i think i'm now much more collaborative i just want to work with people and sort of uh, because you know, realize that you know we're all working on the same path to very very similar kind of goals and uh, particularly in something that involves horses we're all kind of you know um united i suppose by the fact that we think these are incredible creatures to spend your time with yeah um, Andreas, I'm fascinated by your work. Um, want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so, so much uh, for this interview. And I would love to um, actually be part of one of your um, projects in the future um, and meet you in person. Thank you so much. And thank Great. you for pushing the field forward. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of LeadSax Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please support us by giving us five stars and following us. You can continue the conversation on comments on our LinkedIn page under Leads Adventures. See you next week. One, two. LeadSax Podcast is only possible. Thanks to our amazing team. Franz Antenheld, Alexander Ritter, Mariana Ribeiro Brazão, Julia Billick, Linus Lamar Lunds, and Nathalie Tyson. A special thanks to the team at Riverside and Jonathan Kissing.